Welcome to the first episode of Twisted Mirror. A brief note before I start, content warnings will not be announced before the show because they often contain spoilers. However, they will always be included in the show description if this is a concern for you. If you enjoy the podcast, please write a review and share with like-minded friends who might enjoy the podcast too. You can follow the Twisted Mirror podcast on IG at Twisted Mirror Podcast or on Facebook, facebook.com Twisted Mirror Pod. You are now staring into the Twisted Mirror. A child staring at you through vacant eyes in the dead of night. It might be one of the creepiest tropes in horror. But why does a small, seemingly defenseless child send chills down our spines? Is it the silence? The hollow eyes? The unsettling contrast between innocence and malice? Could it be that in that child we see the loss of our own innocence that, once taken, can never be reclaimed? Despite the hysterical nonstop news coverage, I wasn't too worried about the impending storm. I'd planned to be out in my dad's cabin during the entire winter break from grad school so I had nowhere to go anyway. Well, I guess it was my cabin, now that he was gone. My professors were so understanding about the sudden loss, letting me make up for exams or assignments on my own time. So I took the train from New York City to Boston with my fiancé, Ariel, and we went through the dizzying funeral plans, the wake, the burial, the collecting of endless food, condolences, and distant family I hadn't seen in ages. Then I was left with the artifacts of him, the things that spoke of his existence like a discarded skin spoke of a snake at once sheathed. How could a man like him just disappear? How could he be reduced to this? A couple of houses full of his possessions and some pieces of paper that spoke of his wishes. That will left me, his only child, everything, including this cabin in the woods. Most men have a man cave, but my dad had his own man cabin. Sometimes he would take me out to stay with him, but most times he would drop me off at my aunt's house for the weekend and then drive up to it alone. I adored him, but I understood. He was a single father, losing my mother in a short battle with breast cancer when I was just three. He was also a prominent surgeon. He had a lot on his plate, and I understood why sometimes he just needed to be in the middle of nowhere, in silence. He always said his cabin was his second happiest place in the world, and that his first was anywhere with me. Babe, Ariel shouted from the bedroom. I was trapped in an empty thought, not quite daydreaming. And I had heard her, but I couldn't snap myself out of the fog to answer. Carly! She poked her head around the corner. Her insistence jolted me from my waking sleep. Yeah? I asked, my eyes still blankly staring out at the frigid sleep pouring over the night sky. The radio says the roads are closed now. I shrugged. Figured. I glanced at Ariel, and her brow furrowed in the cutest way. She was a city girl, and had perhaps watched one too many Cabin in the Woods horror stories. Oh, don't worry. I promise we have enough food, firewood, batteries, and the like for months. You know Dad was prepared more than anyone. I walked up to Ariel, wrapped my arms around her waist, and nuzzled my face into her neck. We could both use this, 
a break from the insanity of classes, technology, the loss. My voice trailed off as I tried to hold back the abrupt flood of tears I knew was on its way. I was so sick of fucking crying, and I refused to release the waterworks yet again. Ariel sensed it and turned around to face me. You okay, babe? A crash in the distance startled us. After a pause and a peek out of several of the windows, I assured Ariel it was just a fallen branch. I hadn't realized how skittish she could be until we got here last night. I'll admit this cabin is about as isolated as they come. You can't drive to the cabin without a real 4x4 once you pull out of the main roads and start taking the dirt side roads. That's why my dad loved it so much. Sometimes we'd play wildly in the snow and we'd practice screaming as loud as we could. He said it was a good way to feel one with nature and keep the bears away. We'd yell and yell into the forest and he would challenge me. If you can get someone to hear you, I'll take you to get a giant slice of chocolate cake on your way back home. I never got the damn cake. I thought about that often. How rare it is for kids to be encouraged to be as loud as possible. At the time, I didn't realize how therapeutic that was. Just letting it all out with no fear of judgment. During points in my life when the stress piled on me like fallen rubble, I used to wish I could transport myself to the cabin and just release that pressure valve. To be honest, ever since arriving to the cabin, every time I gazed out that window, I felt tempted to go out and holler at the top of my lungs. Maybe Dad would hear me, wherever he was. I was sure Ariel would understand, but instead, I chose to keep the scream burrowed in my chest. I could feel it lodged in there. I hoped it would dissolve on its own. I hoped I wouldn't be forced to let it out. Maybe one day, I could scream like that in front of Ariel. For now, it was just a special secret between me and my pa. Dad's job was always about people. His life was always about me. And this was a special place. One where he could meditate, hunt, and as he so often told me, feel close to mom. Mom was quite the outdoors woman herself, so it made sense. As I fed a log into the fire, the crackling sound and smoky scent reminded me of roasting marshmallows with dad on Christmas Eve. Now that he was gone, I started to see him in so many little things I had taken for granted. I started to understand how he would continue to live through me the way my mom did in him. I casually wiped the tear away with my sleeve, hoping Ariel wouldn't see it. She'd worried so much about me since my father died. I was a daddy's girl. I'll admit that with zero shame. I was so lucky to have him, and I didn't expect to lose him like that. So suddenly. He died peacefully in the sleep of a heart attack, they said. I'd always been certain I'd be able to say goodbye. He was so big and strong, 6'5 and burly. He was invincible as far as I was concerned. Instead, my last words to him were that I was too busy to talk because I was prepping for an exam and that I'd call him back. I did tell him I loved him. I at least did that. The next day, I was sitting in the middle of that exam when someone came in and whispered something to my professor. I didn't pay it much attention, just noticed it out of the corner of my eye. Then the professor was standing over me, whispering into my ear that she needed me to step outside of the classroom. I had planned this almost as soon as the initial tidal wave of grief and shock had broken. To come here, and use the winter break to reflect in his favorite spot with the woman who would soon become my family, to box up the things in the cabin that needed to go into storage and just sort everything out. Although I now owned this and my childhood home, I wasn't prepared for that responsibility. 
but as I sat with Ariel by the fire, drinking hot cocoa, I was grateful for everything Dad did for me. Being left with homes and an inheritance were problems of the privileged, and I understood that. I pulled myself out of Ariel's arms in an attempt to break out of the melancholy that had started to take hold. I'm going to do some packing. Okay, I'm going to get some tunes going. She turned the dial on the radio. Most of the channels were fuzzy, with every third word or so coming through. She stopped at the first audible station, which played 24-7 Christmas songs. Ariel started flailing enthusiastically to rocking around the Christmas tree. I rolled my eyes and grabbed a box. She followed not too long after. So he was a big hunter? Ariel asked as she draped one of his shirts on the bed, folding it the way she always proudly declared she learned in her many years working at All Saints. Yeah, it was his alone time thing. Did you, like, eat the meat? Her face turned. City woman. I shrugged. He never really brought stuff back. He said he would hand it off to the locals, that the two of us would let it go to waste. Ariel looked around the room. Where is all his hunting gear? I looked around. Hmm. There's a gun in the closet. Oh. Just the one, she said. I imagine there'd be a big deer head on the wall and all that. She placed the sweater in a box with a light shrug. He wasn't like that. He didn't make it his whole identity, like those people who have a pick holding their latest kill as their avatar. I rolled my eyes at the thought. Or their latest catch. Me catch fish, Ariel said in her worst caveman voice. I realized for all of Dad's years coming out here, I didn't take much interest in his hobbies. Hunting never really appealed to me. And on the rare occasion, he brought me to the cabin. We had a tradition. We would do fun outdoorsy stuff that didn't involve shooting animals. And then he would make us a heaping pot of chili. After that, he would make me hot cocoa and I would collapse into a blissful slumber. Oh, yeah, there's the shed outside. I bet his stuff is in there. I'm sure he didn't want me around the guns when I was little and the habit stuck. When we couldn't stomach the Christmas station or packing any longer, we changed the station to the National Weather Service. The nor'easter was the worst we had seen in a decade. The sleet would soon give way to feet of snow. I didn't say anything to Ariel but I knew this meant we would be trapped here for at least a week, possibly more if any trees went down. A private plow company would have to get us out. Dad had the same guy since I was a kid, and he didn't even have to call. Bob would just show up as soon as the roads allowed. Still, that would only be possible after the main roads were first complete, and if push came to shove, we did have a snowmobile. Ariel dozed off in front of the fire on the sheepskin rug, that had been my favorite spot to nap on as a child. Watching her laze away peacefully gave me some much-needed serenity. I grabbed a blanket and covered her, turning the radio to a station of classics. My dad used to do this, too, play songs from his childhood, songs his parents loved. I turned on the volume low enough to make it a lullaby for Ariel, but not so low that it couldn't be heard over the howling, angry winds outside. I made myself a cup of tea and wrapped myself in my dad's heirloom blanket, the one he always kept in the cedar chest, and cozied up in a worn cognac leather chair beside the window. The forest outside was ink black, but the porch light illuminated flecks of sleet raining down along its path. Invisible around it were hints of barren trees and frozen ground. Staring out the window at the harsh weather, made me feel even cozier within the cabin walls. After a while, the comforting contrast seduced me toward a warm slumber, and my eyelids began to droop. I thought I should move to an actual bed, and so began the stubborn battle between instant sleep and delayed gratification. A few times my head sagged, and my eyes dropped as I deliberated, each time opening them to the stream of ochre light outside and the pellets of the frozen rain shooting past it. Once. Twice. Three times. 
maybe four or five or six. After the last time I forced my eyelids open, she was there. I jumped in my seat and blinked my eyes in a frenzy, assuming I must have been half asleep and dreaming, but the vision persisted. Out in the dark, freezing storm, directly in the path of the light, stood a little girl staring back at me. Her arms were at her sides, unmoving as the weather sadistically beat at her. Her wet hair whipped in the wind like a torn sail in an ocean storm. She wore a little red peacoat with white stockings. Her legs beneath her knees were buried in the snow. It was far too inhospitable outside for a child. More importantly, what the hell was she doing out here? And how the hell did she get out here? I peered through the ice-blurred windows for any adults, but saw none. I'm ashamed to admit it, but the first emotion I felt was fear. What could a little girl do to me? She needed my help, not my suspicion. But people didn't just happen upon this cabin, especially little girls in their Sunday best during the storm of the decade. Ariel, I whispered, not taking my eyes off of the little girl. She didn't hear me. Ariel, I hissed. She stirred innocently. Hmm? I frantically waved her over, but kept my voice low. Wake up. Hurry. She sensed the urgency in my hushed tone. As she sat up quickly, her face still covered with the mask of sleep. What is it? There's... Just come look. I gestured impatiently. She did the opposite, affixing herself to her spot with wide-eyed trepidation. You're scaring me. Don't be scared. Just look, please. She hesitantly crept over. I didn't want to speak, though there was no way anyone could hear us outside over the violent winds. She leaned over the chair behind me. What the hell? She muttered, crouched over my shoulder. I was falling asleep, and she was just standing there. All alone? Did someone drop her off? I didn't see, but the snow looks untouched. No tracks from what I can see. I was half asleep, and she literally just seemed to appear. We have to go get her, right? I asked. Yeah, but... I knew what Ariel was going to say. It wasn't safe for the two of us to just run out there. Something felt off. I know, I said, glancing back over at the motionless child as the storm swirled around her in the black night. We stared at each other for a few seconds. We were good people. We would always save a child in need. But there was something aberrant about her little frame still as a post with an unwavering glare amidst nature's cold chaos. The fact that she would be out here alone at one in the morning, the fact that her clothes looked like she was going to Sunday school, not like she should be anywhere near a forest in this weather. I stood up. Okay, I proclaimed through a resolute exhale, bracing Ariel's shoulders. I ran into the bedroom closet, which was mostly empty now, save for the one thing I had decided I would keep in it, a shotgun. I loaded the shells, and Ariel gasped. I don't think she'd ever seen anyone load a gun up close in her life. Don't worry. I shook my head inside. God, I don't want to scare this kid. You stay in here. If anything weird goes down, don't open the door, okay? Just don't. 
She nodded, but I didn't believe her. I threw on boots and a parka and wrestled the door open against the unforgiving elements outside. The biting wind screamed as soon as I stepped out from the warm, dry air of the cabin. I held a flashlight in one hand and rested the shotgun just inside the door. Hey! I shouted over the rattling branches. Are you okay? The child turned her eyes from the window and over to me, but didn't say anything. She was about 25 feet away, and I turned the flashlight's beam toward the surrounding woods to see if anyone was lying in wait. From what I could tell, the coast was clear. And I called out to her again, trying to coax her toward us so I wouldn't have to step out and expose myself, but she continued to respond with an empty stare. I knelt down on one knee to shrink myself down to a less intimidating size and smiled. It's okay. We're friends. I gently beckoned her. She remained still and void of expression. I sighed and looked over at Ariel. She nodded once in approval. I slipped my hand over the gun and propped myself up. I decided against taking it with me, thinking it would scare the kid and walked toward her calmly. I took a few steps before glancing back at Ariel, whose head was poking out the door. She nodded more assuredly this time. I continued on, and when I was within a couple of feet of the little girl in red, that paranoia, that innate sense of dread, melted away like sun-drenched snow. Her red coat glowed so bright and rich, even in the dimly lit space in the vast forest. As I got closer, I noticed that her coat seemed untouched by the elements, as if it repelled the snowflakes that had all battled to die on her little frame. The nerves melted as I approached her. She was so tiny, so vulnerable out here against the brunt force of an angry nature. Suddenly, I wanted to wrap her tight in my arms and drag her to safety. I bent toward her. Are you okay? She still didn't answer. Just looked at me with those giant brown eyes. You must be so cold. My friend and I live in there. It's warm and safe. Just us girls. Will you come inside? I can't let you stay out here. I know you must be scared, but I will keep you safe, okay? She blinked, but still no reaction. Finally, I stood tall again and reached my hand to her. I didn't wear gloves, and in just that short time, my fingers ached from the cold. She put her little frigid hand in mine. The tension in my body escaped all at once. I turned and walked toward the house, and without hesitation, she followed. Ariel and I stripped her of her clothes and put her in a hot bath. As we heated some soup for her, we went over what we should do. Cell phone reception was nil, and phone lines were down. I remembered my dad's two-way radio, which was out in the shed. When I retrieved it and tried it, all I got was static. Where could she possibly have come from? No Amber Alerts had chirped on local radio before the signals had cut out. There wasn't another home for miles. It was almost impossible for an adult in proper gear to trek out here in this weather, let alone a small child. Was she dropped off out here? Abandoned? If so, that would be akin to attempted murder. The little girl was no help. Though receptive to instructions, she wouldn't speak. Miraculously, she had no frostbite, but I could only assume she was in some sort of shock. Ariel and I decided we would see if the weather cleared up enough the next morning for me to hop onto the snowmobile to alert authorities. The girl sat at the center of the tub with her knees pulled up to her chest. Her straggly wet hair clung to her neck and shoulders. Ariel, who was always a little more delicate than me, walked over to her 
and sat on the toilet lid beside the tub. She tucked a wet clump of hair behind the girl's ear. The girl maintained her absent expression. What's your name, sweetheart? I'm Arielle, and this is Carly. The girl looked at Arielle, and then in what could be mistaken for an attempt at communication, at her own heap of clothes on the floor. Oh, don't worry. I'm going to get you some fresh clothes. But they'll have to be big girl clothes. I hope that's okay. The girl stared at her. Okay, we'll have to call you something. How about... Ariel looked around the room and back at that same mound of clothes. A red peacoat and a dress and a tangle with white stockings and black Mary Janes. Ruby! It looks like you like red, so we'll call you Ruby. We dried off Ruby and put her in a big t-shirt. We sat her at the kitchen island on a stool and she ate her entire bowl of soup. We decided we would let her have the big bed in my father's bedroom, at least for tonight. She could have some privacy, and Lord knows she needed a good night's sleep in a way too big bed. We tucked her in, told her she was safe, and she could call our names whenever she needed. Then we turned off all the lights, but one table lamp, just enough to act as a nightlight, and walked to the door. As I closed it, I heard movement behind me. I turned back to find her walking over to the corner of the room. I tugged on Ariel's shirt to get her attention. We watched in curious silence as she walked over to the empty closet and sat on the door with her knees tucked up, pressing herself tightly against a corner. I motioned to go in, but Ariel stopped me. Maybe we should let her do what feels safe. She suggested. Okay, I guess, I said. Shouldn't we at least set up a little bed for her in there? Ariel agreed. So I placed the pillow and blanket in the closet for her. A chill running through my body, wondering if this child must have experienced some trauma that triggered this behavior. Ariel and I were exhausted by the time we put her into bed. It was close to three in the morning. We decided to sleep in the living room in case she needed us, and so Ariel and I made a bed in front of the fire and dozed off. Bright lights flooded the windows the next morning, signaling a welcome break in the storm. Ariel and I awoke together and checked the time as soon as we rose. It was only 7 a.m., We were still tired, but our new guest was our priority, and we knew the weather could turn again at any moment. I'll check in on her, Ariel declared, and for Pete's sake, please make us a pot of coffee. She kissed me on the forehead and we parted ways, me for the kitchen, her for the bedroom. Only seconds later, I heard her. Ruby? Carly? Is Ruby out there? I was puzzled, of course, and ran over to her. No, I don't think so. I haven't seen her anywhere. I ran over to the small second bedroom, which was untouched. She's not in there, I called out before running back to the master bedroom. The little bed we had made for her in the closet was now on the bedroom floor, as if she had pushed it out. Her clothes are gone, Ariel said after fleeing the dryer open. What the fuck? How could she have left? I would have heard her. I irrationally turned over couch cushions. Why would she leave? Ariel answered, maybe she was scared. More scared of this place than what was out there? I forcefully gestured to the white woods. What are we going to do? Ariel asked. The shed, I exclaimed, slapping my palm against my head. Maybe she's out there. I hastily threw on some gear and trudged out toward the shed. The snow was high as my shins, making speed an impossibility, and I wondered how and why that child would venture out into this in stockings in Mary Jane's. I pushed open the shed door and keeled over in exasperation. She wasn't in there, but the snowmobile was. 
Now more than ever, it was important I get to the police station so a search could be mounted. Ruby would not last a single hour out here. I mounted the snowmobile. Dad always kept the key in the ignition ready to go. I turned it to get going, and nothing happened. Absolutely nothing. Not a hum, roar, or hiss. Complete silence. Are you fucking kidding me? I shouted. I dismounted and dug around to see if I could figure out what was wrong. My father was meticulous about his things, so whatever happened wasn't due to neglect. After fussing around for a bit and pulling off a panel, I found what seemed to be the root of the issue. Several wires had been completely chewed through. Furthermore, the entire area was full of debris. Hair, twigs, leaves. Mice had made a nest inside of the vehicle, completely decimating the electrical. I slammed my fist on the seat in frustration. I was the handy one between Ariel and me, and I didn't have the slightest idea how to fix this. I launched back into the house, drenched in sweat and melted snow, to a nervous Ariel waiting by the door. I keep trying the radio, but nothing, she said. She's not in there, and the goddamn snowmobile is dead. We have to search for her on foot. She couldn't have gotten far. I glanced out of the window at my car, sunken in two feet of freshly fallen powder. Our feet were the only reliable transport. The roads this way would be among the last to be plowed. We won't be able to get to the police for a while. I picked up the phone, and the line was still dead. Our cell phones weren't even worth trying out here. Yep, we can't even call for help. We just had to find her. Ariel's face went gray with dread. I felt terrible that my promises of a peaceful retreat had been broken, but had no time to dwell on that. We dressed in heavy layers, and I prepared the way my father had taught me. I made sure to bring hot water bottles, a GPS, and energy bars. When I flung the door open, I was reminded of the exhausting work ahead. Each step was its own act of labor. I knew in many ways this was a pointless endeavor, but I wouldn't be able to live with myself if we didn't try. It was then I noticed that, other than my own prints, the snow was completely untouched. Not a single footprint, not even from an animal, blemished the snow. I trudged about the house, and it was the same. Maybe she left before the snow broke, but I couldn't imagine a little girl in a red dress and pea coat with white stockings and little black shoes being out in this. It defied anything that made sense. I stopped in my tracks as my concern for the little girl was replaced with trepidation and a hint of fear. That same dread I felt when she stood outside the night before crept within me. Something wasn't right. No shit, right? But I don't just mean that we lost the little girl. I mean something wasn't right and that what had happened here defied reality. Are you okay? Ariel asked. I shook her off and marched ahead even more fervently. I didn't want to scare her with what was going through my head. Perhaps more importantly, I didn't want to scare myself. We searched for hours until the low winter sun began to flicker between the naked trees and I knew we had to turn back before we ended up stuck out in that dark. The forecast had predicted another storm was coming. Defeated, tired, and devastated, we went back to the cabin. Somberly, we showered and prepared for dinner. Ariel cried a few times, and I sat in the chair where I first spotted little Ruby in despondent numbness. That poor girl. She's not going to make it out there. Ariel sobbed. I felt she was likely already dead, but I didn't see how mentioning that would help. I threw my head back and let out a dejected sigh. I don't know what else to do. I knew we'd be safe if the storm came, but I didn't count on this. 
We sat in silence for most of the night, changing the station between weather reports and the same classic radio station I'd listened to the night before. I tried the radio periodically, but still nothing but harsh static. It was so bizarre how everything was breaking down on us considering my father's meticulous maintenance of his possessions. Melancholy tunes from the 50s rang through our sad silence, and it seemed fitting for a night like this. Again, I began to doze off in my chair, though this time Ariel was reading a book on the sofa. I noticed every few minutes she would huff and return to the previous page. Sometimes she'd set it down and pace around, look out the window with arms crossed, and come back to her book. Eventually, she passed out with the open book on her chest. Again, I nodded off, looking at that lonely stream of light where I'd spotted Ruby the night before. This time, with all the gently falling snow, the light bounced, setting the scene for glittery powder set against an endless void. Again, I opened my eyes and found a little girl standing out there. She wasn't wearing red. No, this one was wearing a baby blue parka and a hat, but it was dated, something I would have worn to play in the snow as a child in the late 1980s. I jumped out of my chair, this time with zero hesitation or fear. I shouted Ariel's name, but I couldn't stop to explain. I heard her calling out my name over and over as I ran out into the snow barefoot and over to the child. I scooped up the little blonde girl and ran inside with her. What the hell is going on? Ariel pleaded, just as her face erupted with bemusement at the scene in front of her. It's another girl, I announced, as if this made any sense. It's not her. It's not her, I repeated as I pulled the little pom-pom hat off the silent girl's head and pushed her hair out of her face. Are you okay? What's your name? I asked breathlessly. She didn't speak either. We called this one Blue. We bathed Blue, fed her, cleaned her clothes. Blue wanted to sleep in the closet too. This time, we kept the door to the bedroom open and slept in the same room on the bed. We would be vigilant. We would not let this happen again. In the morning, Blue was gone. We lost our collective shit again. We searched again. We came home exhausted again. We cried helpless tears again. We debated theories again. Was there a secret orphanage in the woods? Was there a gas leak causing us to hallucinate? Was someone innocently dropping children off with us? No answer made sense. Just like Ruby, we lost Blue for good, too. That night came Saffron. We slept in the same room as her and propped the chair in front of the door. We lay on our makeshift bed on the living room floor, exhausted and mystified. I had still held on to the notions of the physical world. I still rationalized that two little girls had shown up to our isolated cabin in the woods in the middle of the night and disappeared into the wilderness, leaving no trace behind. I refused to give a voice to the weak thoughts, insisting that what was happening was beyond explanation. Ever the practical one, I promised myself we would not lose Saffron. I nailed the windows down, and she would have to push the door open, sliding the heavy chair in front of it to make her escape. Ariel and I lay on our sides, facing one another as the fireplace crackled in the dark house. Her eyes were pink and puffy from a mix of exhaustion and tears. We had tried everything to find the girls, and we knew that their fates were sealed out here. Ariel trailed her middle finger down the side of my face. What's really happening here? She asked in a frail voice. I don't know, I responded. But I'm not letting it happen again. She shook her head at me in the way only Ariel could. 
an annoyance that didn't make me feel invalidated or attacked, but it did surprise me. I propped my head on my hand. What's that about? I asked. I think I already knew what she wanted to say. Because for all of the performative searching, fruitless tries on the radio, nailing of the windowsill, the idea lurked that none of that actually mattered. She rolled onto her back with a sigh, crossing her hands behind her head. Carly, you know what I'm thinking. I think you're thinking it too, but you want me to say it. Say what? My eyes searched for the chair in front of the bedroom door that remained unmoved. Something isn't right here. It's not natural? What do you think they are? Little little ghost children? And why? Ariel sat up, alert. Her weariness warded off by us finally acknowledging what I had refused to up until this point. I don't know. Maybe something happened out in these woods. I stared at her for a second, deadpan. But then a slow smile emerged, and I began to laugh heartily. Ariel rolled her eyes with a half-smile and hit me with her pillow. You're such an asshole. Shh, you'll wake up the ghost child, I said. But the truth was, I was starting to believe what my gut told me the second I laid eyes on Ruby. Something wasn't right. I had initially suspected this was something worldly, like a setup for a robbery, a way to lure two young women out of the house. But maybe what wasn't right was something greater, something that challenged the very reality we understood. I thought about my dad. He always had the answers. Now, I had taken on the role in my relationship with Ariel. Ariel was kind and generous and big-hearted, but she was never one to hide her vulnerabilities. I always felt like I had to be the brave one, the one who fixed things, the one that assured her that being out here during a storm was safe and we'd ride it out with no worries. Now, we were out here with no contact with the outside world and the unexplainable happening. I had no answers, no practical solutions. Ariel turned her back to me and I spooned her. We lay there in silence for a few minutes and I knew she was still unsatisfied with my response. Carly, she whispered. Hmm, I asked. I'm scared, she said. I gripped her a little tighter. Me too. In the morning, Saffron was gone. Next came Violet. I didn't sleep at all that night, but I swear I blinked and she was gone. going on? Ariel whispered to me that night. She'd gone from meek contemplation of the supernatural days before to shameless acceptance. I don't know, I told her. And now, I knew my rationalizations and denial were a brittle shield against the strength of the nightly phenomena we were experiencing. I had submitted to whatever this was. I had accepted that every night A little girl would show up, sleep in that closet, and then she would be gone by morning, no matter what we did. And it would keep happening until it didn't. What would happen after that? We had no idea. That initial dread that consumed us when we first saw Ruby now remained a constant fixture. But now the fear wasn't of the mysterious children themselves or some sort of elaborate setup, but of what they might represent. Something we couldn't explain or even comprehend was happening out here in these woods. On the final night, Noor visited us. She was a beautiful little girl with long, shiny black hair and onyx eyes. Early evening of the day Noor disappeared, was when we heard the first sounds of plows in the distance. That meant soon we could get out. 
I knew Bob, the plow guy, would show up bright and early the next morning, as he had always done once the public roads leading to us had been plowed. I stared out the window into the indigo early night sky, wondering if another girl would show up tonight. As soon as we could drive out of here, we would leave this cabin, and I wasn't sure how I felt about coming back. I felt an unexpected pang of guilt at the thought of leaving these voiceless girls behind, who, or whatever they were, whatever came of them. I wondered if my dad ever experienced what Ariel and I had in these woods. What exactly would we say to the police was still undecided. I didn't know how I could present any of this without sounding insane. But if there was a chance those little girls were real, that they belonged to families out there, then we had to tell the police what we experienced. I walked into the bedroom to find Ariel hugging the pillows and blankets the ones we put in the closet for each of the girls, and which they all rejected, and a bunch in her arms. Each girl sat on the closet floor with her knees tucked up, her back pressed against the same corner, with no care for creature comforts. Why did they all insist on sleeping in there? She asked herself under her breath. She gazed pensively at the empty closet. I wish I fucking knew. I waved my hands in frustration at the dumb closet. The one that until recently had held my father's dearest possessions. His favorite outerwear, his shotgun, ammo, boots, spare wool blankets. I remembered when I first got to the house after his funeral, I wrapped myself in this old black and red checkered jacket he had when it seemed like he had owned for as long as I could remember. It didn't smell like he did every day, but it smelled like him when we were out here together on the rare occasion. His scent out here was more woodsy, pine trees and firewood with a hint of tobacco. I missed him so, now more than ever. He'd know what to do. Now, I was an orphan. Like those girls we had seen every night, venturing out into the harsh world on their own, with no protective figure to fall back on. I thought about that as I looked out the window to the spot where I saw each of the girls, where I now impatiently waited for the plows to finish. In that moment, I swear, I felt my dad and I knew, no matter what the hell was happening, I was safe. His presence would guide me. He would help me understand, somehow. Carly? Ariel called me from the bedroom. The pitch of her voice told me she was confused and concerned and that I needed to get to her fast. When I peeked past the doorway, half of the floor planks in the closet had been removed and Ariel was standing in the hole waist deep. There was an open metal box in front of her the old waterproof types in which my dad used to store his important documents. She held a videotape in her hand. There are dozens of these in the box, and I think there's something more down here, but but it's too dark. I ran over to her and pulled her out. She handed me the tape. On the side was a white label with the handwritten title mostly scratched out. I squinted, and studied it as hard as I could to make out what it said under the black sharpie. Carly and Deb at the park. My dad, bless his soul, still had a VCR. I ran over to it, shoved the tape inside, and pressed play. It started with a video of my mom and me when I was just a little toddler. She was pushing me on a swing, the kind that's shaped like a bucket with two holes for little legs. She waved to the camera. I had never seen this one before. I wondered why he'd kept them down there. Say hi to the camera, Carly. My dad's booming voice kindly ordered from behind the camera. My mom bent over and grabbed my little hand, waving it for me. Say hi. 
Snow and static raced along the screen. My heart skipped. What happened to the rest of it? The priceless footage of my mom, who I could only recall through echoes of experiences, like photos and videos. The snow stopped abruptly, and a new setting was on the screen. A shaky camera headed toward that closet in the bedroom. A hand reached out, one familiar to me, and opened it. Of course, it was full of the things I had packed. His coats, flannel shirts, boots, and other possessions. A hand, his hand, that was still adorned by his wedding ring from my deceased mother, reached into the frame and pulled the clothes over to one side. On the floor was a little girl in a red dress and white stockings curled up in the corner. Her giant eyes that were so blank in my presence were liquid with a fear I had never seen before. No, 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 I heard Hariel's guttural whimper as she began to conclude what I refused to. The girl's soft brown eyes looked directly into the camera. My stomach swam with nausea. He spoke. It was not the voice I know, but one I had heard just a minute ago beckoning me to wave and smile. Assured, gentle, kind. It was mocking, taunting, beguiling. I took a few steps back. Oh my God, Carly, Ariel cried. What should we do? Should, should we stop? She reached for the VCR. I motioned for her to leave it be. No, was all I said. Her hand melted away. I should have stopped. I needed to stop. But I couldn't. I wouldn't believe it unless I saw it. I fell to my knees as Ariel ran out of the room and began to throw up. The things he did to her? My dad was a surgeon. He knew all the precise cuts, all the ways you could maim a person, make them suffer while keeping them alive. He'd always said he came out here to hunt. I guess I never wondered why he had just the one shotgun. I was never much into that sort of thing. When I visited, we snowmobiled and played in the snow. It had only occurred to me in passing when sometime after Ariel had questioned me about his poultry arsenal. I went to grab the radio and check on the snowmobile that there were no other guns in the shed. He never brought back the meat from his kills. I didn't care for venison. And he said he gave it to the locals. I didn't doubt it because the man I knew was generous. The man I knew was patient. He rarely lost his cool with me. I thought back to all the trips to the cabin dad took without me. How he kissed me gently and said he'd be back soon. Though he was my only living parent, I was okay with that because he loved me tremendously. And he took wonderful care of me. Dad deserved some alone time. He'd always return looking so refreshed and happy. Those trips out here 
that allowed him to decompress from his life as a single father and busy surgeon made him a better dad to me. How could I have ever known, ever suspected that this was what he came out here to do? My precious father, my angel, their monster. Each little girl I met had no voice, but on the tape, Ruby screamed. She screams in a way I never thought such a little body could be capable of. She begged and cried for mommy. No one would hear her or Blue or Violet or any of them because the nearest house was miles away. They cried as loud as their little bodies could allow over their own shrieks. I heard my own little roar as a girl the countless times we played that game right outside the cabin. He'd give me a treat if I could get someone's attention, but I never could. I thought it was a special secret game we played. I thought he understood the wild complexities of a child and wanted to show his little girl who had lost her mother at such a young age was okay to let the build-up out. How was I to know he was using me to test his lair? That if my little screams could not be heard out there, then he could be assured that neither could theirs. A new scream added itself to the orchestra of agony. The one that I had tried to keep lodged in my chest the one I had been trying to hold in to spare Ariel of my body but independent of me I could hear it like I could hear the girls on the tape like it belonged to some other person but its origin was my own pain snot and tears salted my lips as I howled with abandonment. Was his compulsion, the desire to attack little girls, was that the secret scream that built in his chest? I inherited the houses, his money, all the tender memories of my childhood with him. And now, the nightmares I would have for the rest of my days the sickening sounds of torture, the visuals I now see, no matter how tightly I shut my eyes. They choked over their own howls until their voices gave, and then they were silenced forever by his thick fingers encircling tiny throats. Even then, he took his time. He prolonged the suffering. He held on until the little blood vessels in their eyes turned bright red. Until their faces went pale. And then... He'd let go, just enough for them to cough, gasp. (laughs) Then he'd do it all over again. Until their little bodies finally quit. (laughs) Even then, he wasn't done with them. His perversion knew no bounds. That's when I would stop the tape. 
my mind would have permanently broken beyond repair if I saw it through. Each little girl died in contorted shapes of agony. Dad died peacefully in his sleep. The last words I told him were that I loved him. He had a wonderful life, full of all the things he could have ever wanted. He was loved, admired, respected. He didn't believe in heaven or hell, so he never feared eternal damnation. All that mattered to him was life in the flesh. Ariel ran toward my owls, back into the room, and physically dragged me away. My legs wouldn't work. The beeping of the plows grew louder. Their lights flickered throughout the forest, filling the void of light and sound as they finished clearing the nearest road. Now, I knew what we would say. <laughs>